0: Welcome back to another edition of the Friday podcast. This week, we have a two-part podcast for you with 2006 U.S. Open champion Jeff Ogilvy. Besides playing on the PGA Tour, Jeff is also a golf course architect in his spare time, partnering with Michael Clayton, Mike Cocking, and Ashley Mead and their firm OCCM. In part one, Jeff and I discussed life on the PGA Tour, match play, winning versus contending, young Australian players, the evolution of the game, and much more. Part 2 of the podcast will be released on Tuesday night. If you don't yet, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us in the App Store. Thanks, and without further ado, here is Jeff Ogilvie. What's like a typical week looks like when you're not playing golf?
1: Um, well, it's probably different now than it used to be. I mean, I was a uh, get home Sunday night, go to bed, wake up Monday morning, and like work out what time I was going to go to the golf course and practice. Um, that's what a young professional golfer does, I think. I mean, I've I've been a golf tragic my whole life, so I uh, you spend Sunday night on the airplane coming home, wondering what you did wrong or or liking what you did right and getting excited about working on that more for the week off um a little different now I mean, i've got three kids at home and, um been at this for 20 odd years it's uh kind of i don't really kind of my hands don't really touch the club glove doesn't get unzipped till about thursday now probably <laughs> um if i've played two or three weeks in a row Three or four days off and I take the kids to school on Monday and I probably Monday, I usually just sit on the couch. I do not very much. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, I might start getting around and running any little errands I need to do. And then Thursday, like Wednesday night, I'll start getting excited and I'll start going to the golf course on Thursday and hit a few balls and playing any games of golf that are around and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's less of a grindy kind of all, all in approach to golf now. More like a, I, I really enjoy the kind of days away when I get them now.
0: Yeah, that's I feel it a little bit on my end is just like I play a lot less now than I played when I was younger, but I enjoy it a lot more. Um when you're out on tour and you're at, you know at an event, what do you do with, you know, the considerable downtime that you guys have?
1: Um it seems to be uh I I used to, like, when I played in Europe early days and early stuff, I used to love going to see the town, you know, whatever was around, like, if, I mean, sometimes we go to some pretty uninteresting places and there's not much to do, but whenever we get somewhere like, say, Chicago or LA or New York or some places in Florida, there's always somewhere cool to go and do, something to do, and I used to do a lot of that, but, um... The last sort of five or six years, is much more uh, get back to the room and f- find find a show to binge watch on Netflix and just go. That's uh, getting to be a pretty popular afternoon sort of for the guys out here is find something to binge and just watch it because it fills the time and it's enjoyable and, and it gets your head out of your putting stroke or your golf swing or something about a golf. And it's just that nice little kind of tune out and shut down and just watch TV. So I watch – I've, I've – I'm running out of shows to watch because I've done them all the last four or five years, but that's that's the new thing.
0: I imagine that technology has made it far, far easier for the tour pro to keep themselves busy.
1: Oh yeah, it's brilliant now. I mean, good old days. Um, Well, my early days was just the early days of, remember, like sticking the cable into the phone and trying to find the dial-up code and and every now and then you'd get a half decent thing and you could look at the internet for about half an hour but it was such a frustrating experience that it really wasn't something to fill your afternoon um and, and the movies on TV uh, were expensive and you'd seen them all and it's uh it's great now yeah i mean phones and computers and iPads and uh you can there's tons of guys there's guys who travel with Xboxes and play video games together and like online stuff and um it's much easier to waste an afternoon now than it ever used to be yeah it's, it's quite funny
0: what's uh, what's your favorite uh, favorite series that you've you've binged Any recs? I think
1: my, my favorite show I think was the wire oh yeah uh, I mean, it was just an incredible show I mean I, I think the first one I binged was sopranos I, I, uh, which is pretty normal for a lot of people it's one of those go-to shows. I remember watching Sopranos when it was on a few times. You know, every few Sundays you'd accidentally, oh, The Sopranos is on. And I probably watched 20 of the, well, however many of their episodes, there are 60 episodes over the period that it was on, but never really followed the story. I just kind of enjoyed watching it. But when I binged that start to finish, I mean, it was... It's so much better when you can go back to back to back and you really, the story develops and you really start rooting for Tony. And like, it's a really, uh, I really, really enjoyed that. So then I kind of, I, then someone recommended if you like The Sopranos, because I thought The Sopranos, everyone said this is like the best show ever made, um, which people say about a lot of stuff. But <laughs> uh, um, someone said, if you like that, you got to watch The Wire. It's incredible. And I hadn't even heard of it, never even remembered it was on TV, but it, I've watched it all the way through twice. It was just, i think it's just it's so real um i've never lived in baltimore downtown but it seems real it's not all fluff for tv it's like this is you know this is what it is and um it's brilliant show fantastic
0: i uh i was in college when the wire was was coming out and i mean i just my friends and i i think i've watched each season probably about six to ten times it's it's just the best show i think that they did the what's so fascinating is how they encapsulated every single level of government and city at at, so well, you know, from the mayor all the way down to the, the drug addicts.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just amazing. And it was, nobody was the hero. No one was the bad guy. It was just like, this is the way it is, you know? Um, It was, I mean, the cops were as bent as as the criminals in some situations. Some of the criminals were really good guys, Robin Hood type guys, you know, like that Omar was um, getting from the bad guys and giving to the good guys. And it was just a, just really well done. It had so much depth. You know, you couldn't miss an episode because so much happened in an episode and it would just you'd follow different characters and you'd have your favorites. So I just thought it was – and all kind of no-name actors at the time, right? No one famous. Um, brilliant. It was just a brilliant show.
0: So if if you weren't playing professional golf, what do you think you'd be doing?
1: Well, what I think I'd be doing is I'd probably uh, be teaching golf or working in a golf shop somewhere. Um, I like to think I'd have some sort of uh, great high-level corporate job and be living this dream scenario, but that i don't think that would have the reality is i was going to be my education was in golf i mean i went to school and i did fine and um but my head was always in golf i mean if i didn't make it as long as i had a job where i was around golf i would have been happy hopefully i would have ended up building golf courses um but i think i probably would have ended up a club pro somewhere folding some shirts but uh if my dream, if it wasn't that was that would be the reality of it. If I wasn't quite good enough, I would have been there. If the dream would have been to play play music, I've always loved music. I always dabble on the guitar, and um, I remember listening to music from the youngest age possible. I mean, I think the Walkman, I got it when I was about 12, 12th birthday or something. I got a Walkman, and I did not have it off my head for like ten years. I just loved it. It was just amazing. I still love music. So I'd, the fantasy would be like something involved in the music industry not necessarily a rock star but just involved in music
0: favorite band
1: no well, that's a tough question um all in all if you put it all in like i'd probably say zeppelin like because they just they, they got a bit for they got something for everyone and they really kind of changed music a lot and a lot of uh music kind of came out of kind of what zeppelin were doing um, because they kind of mixed so many genres together and it, it really was the first super group, you know I mean? Four outrageous musicians getting together and they actually stayed together for 10 years. Um, prolific songwriters. I mean, four albums in the first three years and they were all just completely legendary, right? Um, yeah, that would be the historic best, but probably, um, current music it's stuff like black keys, white stripes, um, yeah. Nirvana was a big band for me when I was young. Like Cobain was just a legend. Listen to stuff like Amy Winehouse and um, a lot across the board, everywhere really. Not a whole lot of like rap and um, hip hop, but I'll listen to a little bit of old school hip hop and rap every now and then. But yeah. um, more just the anything based with based in rock, punk rock, classic rock, a little bit of metal every now and then. So that's kind of guitar based music mostly.
0: Zeppelin created their own genre, which is, it's kind of fascinating how everything trends. It, I think parallels with music, parallels with golf course architecture really well in the sense that the guys like Doak and Corin Crenshaw kind of recreated a new genre. And then, you know, every, all the trends in the industry follow them just like, you know, the golden age. And then, you know, you had what Die was doing, you know, when he started introducing new concepts it's it's pretty fascinating how music and and architecture have a parallel there
1: i think i mean i think about that all the time actually that's funny that you say that i mean i really do i think uh i mean zeppelin really all that kind of 60s kind of 70 early 70s music i mean if you trace all of it back it all goes back to like the delta blues you know robert johnson stuff um it all had its root in the blues, which would be like the golden age of music, right? The or golden age of rock music, I guess, would be the blues from um, the the southern US. I mean, that that was kind of the the root, the roots of it all. And and Zeppelin just took that and did it the best, you know. And they they took it to so many wild and wonderful places, and so much variety. It was, it really was, yeah. The Pete Dye kind of Robert Trent Jones kind of period that 50s 60s 70s kind of even 80s really was more specific genres like, you know like it was i mean pete does a little heavy metal right it was a bit sadistic mm-hmm. um it was all about kind of messing with the player's head getting him to feel kind of confused and um just out and out difficult you know in a great way i think pete pete was great um yeah, really, really difficult. And then you had the fluffy stuff, like the pop music. There's been so much fluff in architecture, you know, like fountains and (laughs) like white sand and stripy fairways. I mean, that's the pop music, right? That's the Bay City Rollers, and with no depth. And it's great the first listen. When you're great the first listen, or the first time you go play the course. But after a while, you realise there's just nothing there. Um, it's uh, the parallels are great. I'm glad you brought that up. You're the only other person I've ever heard say that.
0: I, uh, last year I, I called on Twitter Firestone uh, is like Nickelback. You realize that every hole is like the same song over and over again. And I, I got just so much heat from Northeast Ohio just trying to defend their, their tour stop.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, Akron is lacking depth. There's no question. I mean, it's, it's, great in that it's historic and everybody who's been a great player for the last 50 years has played there. Um, and that does something to a place um, that, that, that creates uh, like a, like a vibe or sort of some history. Uh, and, and there's something about that. It's always in such immaculate condition and great players have always won there. So that's what it's got going for it. But it is a little bit nickel back in there. There's no, there's not a whole lot of depth. So, um, and it really isn't going to inspire you. Uh, it doesn't inspire. Like you don't really want to go out and play it again.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of the WGCs, you uh, you won three in your career, and two of them were the match play tournament. Is there something about um, match play that particularly fits your game or the way you play?
1: Um, well, firstly, I think I think there's a few factors why I'm good at it, or I have been good at it. I Firstly, we play a lot of match play in Australia. Growing up, more. I mean, I think it's probably less now, but than there was in say the 80s and 90s when I was kind of coming through. Um, but every serious amateur tournament, bar a couple of them, would dealt, maybe you qualified with a 36-hole stroke play, but it always ended in match play. Um, and we had this inter club pennant stuff in Australia. The and especially in Victoria, it's great. All the golf courses are in what they call pennants, which is. Uh, there's about eight clubs in the division and each team every Sunday for about eight weeks in sort of March, April, May, sends their best eight players to go play against the best eight players of another club. And there's it creates these kind of cool little rivalries between the clubs and um, the sandbelt clubs in Melbourne have always had some of the best players in Australia coming through and we all wanted to play it. So it was this kind of mini little kind of, Ryder Cup style kind of team match play that we would play every week for eight weeks. And it was a lot of pride at stake. I mean, it was... And if you were playing number one or number two, you were playing a top 20 amateur in Australia um, every single week. And we did that every year. And we did a lot of that. And that was a big deal for us. So I played a lot when I was young. It's also my favorite form of the game. I just... The only... One of the only reasons I think people generally have long-term like annoyances with golf is it's always attached to score. It's very rarely just attached with just playing score and I shot 88 today or, or whatever it is like score really affects people's enjoyment of the game. And I think match play completely gets rid of that. And you just, it's just a bare bones competition. And it really doesn't matter what you shoot. If you beat your friend, you're happy, you know, or your opponent. And it's, it's a good thing. And I just think it's, it, it brings out, better levels of golf in people or worse it exposes weaknesses and um i just really enjoy the whole uh the whole match play thing um it doesn't work commercially obviously professionally and that's kind of been proven for years that it doesn't really like we couldn't really do it every week it just doesn't fit the kind of corporate model that we play under but um i love playing it and also i think if I've ever had issues when I play golf, it's because it's a common thing. It's probably most golfers. But my head gets a little bit too in my golf swing and a little bit too in technique, and hit a bad shot, and I, I start messing with my swing. And match play, you, I do that a lot less because it's so final. Like you, you, he, your opponents hit a decent shot, well, you better hit a good shot. So you kind of get your head out of your swing and more into the shot. And I think it gets my head in a in a better place to play. So I think it's kind of a there's a few reasons why I was decent. I think.
0: I think match play is so much so interesting, too, because of the recovery shots. Like, you know, there's so much less penalty for making a seven so you get the chance to hit, you know, great shots. You can try them more often than, you know, in in stroke play where, you you know, you hit in trouble and then it's, hey, how can I get out of here with a chance for par and at worst make a bogey?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a much more freewheeling thing. Yeah, you can – you will take on stuff that is – uh would be completely, like, absurd in a stroke play. And especially in a four-round stroke play, you're kind of building a house right. you got to build a foundation, do everything right along the way, and maybe the end product adds up all right. Um, yeah, match play, I mean, it's – Three, four shots, and and that's done. Forget about that and go to the next. Um, it doesn't matter if you hit three balls out of bounds or you hit spin one into the water. Or like Sergio at the Masters say, like that that's fine. Like you just you just go to the next hole. It doesn't completely end your week. Um, so you do you usually and you'll see that in the match play and in the Ryder Cup and Presidents Cup, the level of golf played is always higher mm-hmm. uh, because 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 of the team aspect, but also because of that aspect that it, it it's 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 success or it doesn't matter you know it's there's no you don't carry any failures to the next hole
0: so i'm curious from your perspective is is winning at the professional level overrated and is consistency underrated when you start to evaluate somebody's career
1: um probably um now Both is obviously a sign of a proper golfer. Anyone who's done both, you know, played for a long time and won a lot of tournaments, you know, the Fred Couples, Davis Love, Tiger Woods, Mickelson, VJ. I mean, clearly there's a class of player that ticks both boxes, and that's obviously the ideal. But if you ask guys out here, let's say a guy, there might be some guys out here who've won five or six times in 20 years but spent the rest of the time missing cuts and – um, just really not competing, competing once a year and maybe winning once every two years. I mean, that's a that's great, and historically, that gets recognised higher than say a player like I'll pick on someone, Charles Howell.
0: That's um, how I was thinking about,
1: who's a benchmark who every if you ask every player out here except that kind of handful of guys who have won piles and piles of tournaments. Almost everyone would have enjoyed Charles Howell's career. I mean, he spent his career finishing between 5th and 20th. He puts a massive check in the bank every week, and he just plays well. It's just got to be fun to play that well, all the time. <laughs> um, it's just, he hits the ball great, he putts great, he's, he's got zero, no weaknesses. As a, The only weakness you would suggest is that his CV doesn't have enough wins for a guy that good. But um, he will historically go down as like, not that great, but anyone who's played with him or been out here for the period that he's been out here. We, I mean, he, he would, a guy like him is held in very high regard um, by the players, but maybe by the media and stuff. Maybe not so much. As I said, hist- history likes wins and especially majors and big wins. Um, I think it's probably, look, there's a balance. I think both, I think both is, both are good signs. I think the consistent guy, like, I don't know who would put like a, like a Jay Haas yeah. that played six or 700 tournaments or whatever he did and kept his card pretty much every single year and was always putting checks in the bank and was always kind of there or thereabouts and contended a few times a year and just a really, really quality player. I mean, that is much harder to do, than to do that for 30 years than it is to just come up, win twice in two years and then be off the tour. There's t- piles and piles of those guys. Um hmm. I think we all aspire for consistency. We all dream about winning, but we aspire to consistency. How about that?
0: That's uh I, I think that's I feel like everybody's always trying to get more consistent. Even when Tiger was at his peak, he talked about trying to be more consistent. Um and obviously the more times you're in contention you have more chances to win. So it goes hand in hand. Um
1: And to me the fun part the fun part is contending. The winning is great, right? No. The winning is like the birthday cake at the end of the party. It's just tremendous. It's like you all look forward to it, and that's great. But everyone at the party has a good time, you know? I mean, it's the party. I mean, the party that's the fun, it's the playing and the stress and the pressure and the first tee and the nerves and hitting shots when you're a bit unsure about it and coming up with what you've been working on in practice and it works in the tournament. I mean, that that's the fun. I mean, that's the real joy of it. Like, it's the it's the – Hitting the great shot when you're really, really your hands are shaking and you're not really sure about it, and you've been dreaming of that shot from your kill. You hold that great putt in the last hole, even if it's a great putt to make the cut on Friday. Then you've really been grinding, and you hold that 12-footer left or right to make. I mean, that's the moment. That's what makes it a great job. That, that, that to me, that's the fun and contention. You just get that sort of stuff way more often, and the win is just the, is the cherry on top. You know, that's it's great, and we all want to do it, and all the stuff that comes with winning is brilliant. But if you just gave me the trophies and the money and didn't let me actually have the experience of it, I don't know if I would take it. The experience of it is, why, is the real kind of joy of the job.
0: Is is there an event that you didn't win that you were in, like the contention deep that like you remember the most and think about the most?
1: Um, I don't really, actually. I mean, I was... Fairly lucky, or to this point. Hopefully, I'm not done. You never know. I might be, but hopefully, I've got a few more. <laughs> I pop up there a couple more times, but I've never really, I've, I've gone away a little bit. Kind of, oh, you could have done better. You, you could have. You finished third this week or whatever. You, you probably should have done that. But I've never really had any regrets. I've never, thank goodness, hit one out of bounds on seventeen or like. uh missed a short part that really, really mattered to me. Um, I mean, I've missed plenty of short parts, don't get me wrong, but not one that I carried with me too much. Um, mm-hmm. There's plenty of tournaments that I wish I'd um, played a little better. I mean, the Masters in 2011, when Charles Birdie the last five holes where he did, I finished fourth and I ended up four shots behind. But at the time, I was tied for the lead on the 17th before he went nuts. Um, and that was great and I really enjoyed it. But I'd had a... F- I'd had two four-putts and a 3 part that week. And, and I if I had any regrets, and they were early in the week, but I looked back and like, if those four-putts were just three-putts, you know. Um, but I didn't carry it with me for very long. I mean, I I don't I haven't really had any that I've just taken a while to get over. No real heartbreak. I mean, I don't see the point. Pretty much every tournament, it's so difficult out here that when you actually have a good tournament, um, unless you really, really just give it away on the last couple of holes which thank goodness i've never done i usually leave after a good tournament excited about the next one because oh i'm in form like oh, i've just finished third shit i can win next week let's go next week and i get so excited about the next week because of how my game is mm-hmm. that i haven't really looked back i haven't really carried any regrets really so that's a nice thing
0: it's a fun game when you're playing well
1: <laughs> yeah it is i mean that's what you do it for right i mean it's so hard to play well for any length of time that when you do, it's like it's just the best.
0: Yeah, it's uh, everything starts clicking. Um, so, if uh, what's the tournament that you haven't won yet that you'd most like to win? Is it the Masters?
1: It'd be the Masters or the Open, um, the Open Open, not the U.S. Yeah, open, obviously. I um, the. The Masters is such a beautiful tournament. It's such... Just the idea that you could go back and play there for pretty much as long as you wanted. and um, The Masters is pretty special. Pretty high on my list. Um, And the Open, too. I mean, winning an Open... They'd be equal time for me. They're they're clearly equal first. You know, everything else would be playing for third, if you like.
0: Yeah. Um, it's the um...
1: yeah, amazing i mean i love the open the open's such a beautiful special tournament but you can have bad experiences at the open if you get the bad draw and you get the horrible weather it's like you kind of wonder why you even play the sport sometimes and sideways rain in scotland you know um but you never have that at the masters you know it's just all and that's not the open's fault that's part of it and that's and you've got to enjoy that aspect of it um but getting bad draws and just getting pretty basically getting a bad your number gets pulled out of the hat at the wrong time, and you get your chance for the tournament basically gets taken away from you. There's that aspect. this just kind of a bit frustrating sometimes. Um, the Masters, just because of it's such an exclusive place, and it's such a hard place to get in the gate, even to, to basically have kind of the pass to go to Augusta whenever you wanted for the rest of your life. That would be pretty special.
0: What about Augusta makes it so great?
1: Um. They tick every box. Um, firstly, I'm not a big proponent for the exclusivity of the place. I'm not big on um, these kind of closed-door clubs that the haves and have-nots kind of side of things. I mean, I know it exists and it's part of it. And that's part of why the Masters is the Masters, right? Because no one's really allowed to go there. And we, for one week a year, we get to glimpse it on TV and the lucky few get to go see it, right? I mean, that's that's part of its appeal. I get that um but the courses the courses like strategically the most interesting we play outside of perhaps some of the open courses um it's there's no stone unturned you know they the food is incredibly good the the practice range now is just the best there is i mean it's there's the practice rounds for us, there's there's only players and caddies inside the ropes. There's no one else there. So you don't get these like seventeen odd people entourages walking down the first fairway, you know, with with psychologists and trainers and stuff on the fairways, which just kind of makes the practice rounds a bit of a mess, you know, like the autograph policy and that they have this great setup where kids get kids have a little spot and we all sign for the kids and we're not really supposed to sign on the golf course side of the clubhouse. So we have these great practice rounds where you actually start interacting with the fans a little bit because they're not throwing Sharpies in your face, you know? Um, so you have conversations or, with or their cell phone now. chatting under the tree and stuff. It's just great.
0: Yeah. It's uh, the, the cell phone thing too. They aren't taking pictures. So they're actually no, it's, watching. It's
1: brilliant. I mean, it's just, they've just got everything worked out, you know, like, and I've obviously been there a lot of times. And so every time, I mean, we all use our tickets and you get a lot of friends when you're getting in the masters, obviously, but, I've never had someone I've taken to the Masters not walk out going, "Oh my God, that's the best sporting event I've ever been to." I mean, everybody says the same thing. I mean, it's just across the board, just the uh, just the best sporting event there is in the world. Um, from that, from a from a event kind of running perspective, there might be. I mean, the Olympics is great, and the World Cup, soccer, and the Ryder Cup, and all that. But um, from a from how they run the tournament like a from a management thing it's just it's just amazing and every year you go back they've just kind of you didn't think there was anything wrong with it but they've just kind of made it just a little bit better you know it's uh it's an incredible production and the golf course they've got it so dialed in they they understand their golf course so well that they they don't they can't dictate who's going to play well but they really can kind of decide by pin positions and set up how how it's going to come down to the end, how it's going to come down to the end on Sunday. You know I mean? They kind of, they can set up the course so it's difficult on Thursday and a little bit easier on Friday. And then if they don't, if it's a little bit tough on Friday, then, then, then they, they let guys have a few birdies on Saturday to create the excitement. I mean, they've just got it so worked out. And it's very hard to remember too many masters that, with two hours to play, weren't edge of your seat, compelling. You know, every single time it just seems to be that way. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's just. I mean, I, I'm obviously like being maybe even over positive or about this, but it's just there's is no other event that seems to 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 get it right more often than they do.
0: Yeah, I mean the the one that looked like it was going to be a snooze fest in recent time was Spieth, and sure enough, then. 12 happened. And then it was like one of the most fascinating finishes of the last 10 years. Um, but so it, I mean, Augusta is a, it's a really cool place and in, in the masters is obviously it's like the pinnacle of the golf year, which is kind of depressing that it happens in April. Um, but it, how have you noticed that the professional game has changed, uh, over your career in the last, you know, 14 years or so since you've been, um, pre- prevalent on the PGA tour.
1: Well, the obvious thing is, well, the obvious thing is the the way guys hit the ball and the way guys work on their golf games. I mean, my I was I was coming kind of coming up at the end of that era where we still really didn't know how to swing it properly. You know, there was still lots of schools of thought on technique. Um, your, your coaching and stuff would be a little bit of guesswork, uh, a little bit of feeling. Each coach would have his own kind of like kind of take on some and some of them were really different and guys really didn't start hitting the ball well until they were in their 30s and um didn't really start playing very well until really kind of getting into that top echelon until they were in their 30s and they had 10 years under their belt and they'd kind of really learned how to play golf golf it's different now i mean it's it's so well coached the i think the video camera was the worst thing that ever happened for golf technique and i think Trackman might be the best um it's it's just a uh, guys swing it great when they're young. They hit it miles. They've got their bodies under control. I mean, the fitness side of it is much more understood. Um, they're just the youngsters come out much more polished, much uh, just just more experienced looking players like first year, and that mm-hmm. never happened before. Like it was. it it just it just it used to take such a long time to learn the craft that you really you just did your time for the first sort of five or six years until you kind of worked it out and every now and then there was an outlier like tiger or sergio that got it done straight away but generally it was a tough game to learn quickly and guys are learning it much quicker
0: that's kind of one of my theories on what's happened with pro golf and why there's been this 20 year old explosion was that you know my generation, your generation, like, I didn't... Like, now I know really how to swing a golf club, and I didn't when I was in college and in high school, but when TrackMan came out, it really changed, and, you know, this generation's kind of had to adapt their swing to this this idea, ideal, you know, swing, but these young 20-year-old 20, 20 kids have learned from the beginning how to swing it properly.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think TrackMan... It completely flipped around without getting too technical. I mean, everybody always had the ball starting on your swing path and it curving relative to the face. Well, I guess all of a sudden, TrackMan and the launch monitor has proved that actually, you know, the ball starts on the face, um, faceline, which was a complete reversal of what everybody thought. Now, for the non-technical minor, that probably doesn't mean that much, but it completely opened everyone's eyes about how to... Get the club on the ball, and then everybody started working out well, you're going to have to arrange your body this way in order for impact to be this way. Um, it's a game technically full of contradictions, um, and it's, a, it's a, such a game of opposites all the way through. Which Hogan references in his books. I mean, Hogan obviously had all this worked out, but it took him 30 years of banging balls on the range to get there, right? Kids are getting there now when they're 20, um, because of things like Trackman, but. From day one, I mean, they tell you to hit it down to make the ball go up. I mean, that that is just against all instinct that we have to swing down to make the ball go up. If the ball goes low, all we we all want to just lift it up. Mm-hmm. But what happens is when you start trying to lift it up, is like you either top the ball and it goes really low or if you're actually talented, you'll hit the club on the ball and the ball will start slicing to the right. So the ball goes to the right. So, well, I'm not going to make the next one go right. So you start swinging really hard over the top to – you swing it left because you don't want the club, the ball to go right. So what does that make it? It makes it go further to the right. And the game is full of that. And we had to fight that, you know, but pre, pre all this understanding, um, it was really was trial by error. And it's really hard to find something trial by error when all of your instincts are the opposite of what they need to be. Um, it's all the way goal. golf. So this, this, the track man and understanding really what does make a ball draw or make it fade or go a long way or whatever has kind of kind of opened the door to this great coaching where you see these guys, like I don't know, Xander Schoffle, they they, they come out and they're kids and they just swing it so technically pure that they're so far in front of the curve from relative to where we were when we were 21, 22, that it's, uh, it's almost not a fair fight anymore. You know, it's incredible.
0: So I'm curious when we're talking about young players um, of you know there's a plethora of young uh, talented Australians. If you if you could invest you know like a stock in one of them, who would it be?
1: Um, that's an interesting question because uh, I think the most talent that I see is a kid called Ryan Ruffles, who's playing in uh, the Latin America tour at the moment. He's kind of he turned pro very young at about eighteen or even 17 maybe. Yeah, I think um, he 17. And he's been fighting to get on the web.com and he kind of, he just missed getting off that Latin America tour to get on the web.com last year. Cause he didn't probably play enough events. And, um, but purely watching him play in the talent level, it's very, very sound. I mean, he hits the ball, smashes it as far as Rory does and puts great and hits it well. And his swing is perfect. And to me, it only seems like a matter of time, but golf is a strange game, right? And it, if you spend too long kind of struggling and battling down on those smaller tours, it, it can create a bit of scar tissue in there in the head and um, it can take some time. But he looks the one on paper and when you play with him that he has all the tools. But uh, the Australian kid who won the US Amateur, Curtis Luck, mm-hmm. um, he plays a different game. It's a really interesting game. Shapes the ball a lot. He plays a little bit like Bubba. I mean, a different golfer than Bubba. He doesn't hit it as far. But he, he, he loves hitting big draws and big fades. Low ones in the back pins and high ones in the front pins. He he plays a really cool golf and he, he 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 plays golf like someone who's a lot older than him. He plays very sensible golf and he's been doing quite well and he's on the web this year and I think it won't take him too long and I think he'll do really really well. I think um, and there's a few others but they're the two I'd pick out off the top. I mean, Ruffles looks on paper like if he gets it all worked out he's going to be he could be a world better. Um, and Curtis Luck, he's one of those guys he looks like he could be on tour for a really long time smart guy, plays as I said, a really cool version of the game um, and he's a cool character he does it his own way, which I think is which is to be admired, I think, in this current world of, you've got to do it this way you've got to do it this way, he says, no, 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 no I'm going to do it Curtis Luck's way and, we'll, and this is going to be fine um, so they're the two I'll pick, and they're two different style of players, and, and I wouldn't want to I wouldn't bet on either one. I'd put an each way bet on both of them. Yeah,
0: that that is two good picks. I uh, yeah, Curtis is yeah, he was the first ever player to qualify two ways as an amateur for the Masters. So that's pretty neat. Um, yeah,
1: how about that? That's incredible, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, two. I mean, it's hard enough for a professional where we get thirty chances a year to get into that tournament. He get two chances and he got them both. Yeah. You know, incredible.
0: Yeah, it's uh, that's. I don't know if that'll ever, as you talk about things that may never ever be done again, and that's definitely one of them. Um, So you've been quoted as a a big fan of the LPGA and um, women's golf because of the creativity, kind of what you were talking about with Curtis, the mechanics, their swings. If you were running the PGA tour, how would you try and make the PGA tour product a little bit more appealing?
1: (laughs) Well, Um, the first thing I would do is I would slowly, I would hire people who understood what great golf courses were. Um, and I would try my utmost to get PGA Tour events to architecturally Interesting golf courses. They don't have to be significant and like way up on the rankings, but interesting because interesting golf courses produce great winners and they produce great winners who play. It's more interesting to watch someone play golf courses that have great strategic interests like Riviera. I mean, is there a better hole to watch professional golfers play than 10 at Riv? It's just fascinating. You can watch it all day. Um, and 13 at the masters. Um, I mean, I mean, or you go to St. Andrews, it doesn't translate on TV as well, but if you go to St. Andrews and you watch a few of those holes and, and, and you'll watch 100 pros come through and, and they'll hit it in 100 different places because they all have a little different theory or a little different feel about how to play the hole. To me, that's more interesting. And you'll get a better type of winner. Not that the type of winners we have are bad, but you'll you'll see golfers will get better because they have to be better and they have to have more variety and more thought. So I would I would go to more... In- Interesting golf courses that'd be the first thing I would do um, outside of that I think some different formats would be interesting I think 72 half stroke plays got just a little bit kind of it, it's just a little bit too much of it I mean we have so much of it that uh, the format might be getting a little bit old I like the sh- I like the, the, the stable foot kind of format that kind of encourages aggression a little bit more you know two points for birdie and only minus one for a bogey that that format I think is pretty interesting um, but I would get to know somehow you've got to get to know the players you know that you know the NFL sounds of the game yeah where it's like the, it's the best my favorite part of the NFL I mean I love watching football but the when you have that little show on the NFL network or whatever during the week and they, and they have all the the, the talk of the quarterbacks with their players or the defensive leader on the side of the field yelling at his players telling them to fire fire up and, and the little smart-ass comments they make back and forward, like, kind of, I'm going to get you this time, I'm going to get you this time, or you're not going to catch me. All that stuff. I mean, it just makes football more interesting because you you're on the field for a minute. I would love to see responsible marking of players and caddies. Um, and I say responsible in that it I don't think we should be catching the social conversations of players at all. Uh, I don't think that's right at all. And I just, it's just, part of the nice nice thing about playing golf is having little chats that no one else can hear right that's part of the fun um but the golf specific talk i think people would lap that up i think it would just be amazing i mean it's a very hard thing as i said to do because everyone's got a record button and there's some guy in the truck who's going to have a tape of two guys talking about something that that would be interesting to people if it came out public but the golf talk i mean people want to hear that i mean what is ricky saying to like Skov, like in those last couple of holes, what's he saying? I'm going to go at that pin on 17 at Sawgrass. Or is he telling Skov that he's going to hit it 30 feet left, but he's actually aiming at the pin? That stuff is, that is interesting. And I think whenever you, you get inside, you, you, if you can feel inside the game a little bit more, it, it become, you, you know the players a little bit better and you relate to them and there'd be more, People would have more kind of heroes and favorite play a few more favorite players, you know, because they'd really like the way a guy kind of went about it and chatted about it and talked to his caddy and, and caddies would be a little bit more famous even because they'd begin. Everyone would see their level of involvement. And I know the tour really kind of wants to do it, but it's a really as I said, logistic. It's it's a difficult thing in this day and age when everyone's got a. You could post it to the whole world. Some an inappropriate comment here or there. It would be it'd be around the world in thirty seconds, and and that's a scary that's a scary prospect. But I think it would make the product
0: better. It'd be cool to. I mean, you could do it as like a midweek show from the week before, and it would only be more fascinating if you played more interesting, stimulating golf courses, because then all of a sudden you'd have you know more conversations about what are we going to do here.
1: Yeah, I mean the moments like. The conversation that guys have on the, the top of the hill in 15 at the Masters. I mean, we see the the bombers these days hitting eight irons and stuff end on Sunday, and it's but in the, generally the whole field is like you're standing there and, and like it's a shot that you you know you have to go for the green, but you really don't want to, you know, um, which is why it's such an interesting shot. And you'll get caddies trying to talk players out of stuff, and players trying to talk the caddy into saying no, this is a good idea, and um, you get these little. Minute of real tension, you know, real kind of real stuff, you know, and like you say, it could be the next week, just a little like the sounds of the game, the NFL show, like midweek. Let's, this is kind of what happened last weekend, like this is what we thought was cool, like that would be really fascinating, I think. And as you said on on ten, the 10th tier at Riviera, like the conversations you have would be fantastic, you know. I'm hitting driver, no, you're not. It's a three iron we decided that on Tuesday, now I'm going to hit a driver, no. We decided three on up the left was the play. And, you know, you'd get those things. I mean, that that's what we're privy to that. You know, We've, we know that. So they're not interesting to the players inside the ropes. But we're the only people who've ever heard that stuff. No one else has. Mm-hmm. And I think that that would have a lot of appeal. And And the fans and the public and the viewers would just get a little bit more of a window into the job and what it involves and the personalities and everything going forward. Be, and the way they think about golf, I think it'd be great.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's like the thing that a lot of like the common golf fan doesn't, it, it's, it's so hard for a 15 handicap to wrap their head around the game that you guys play. Cause it's, it's way different than the, you know, weekend warriors game at the local Muni. And I think getting an inside look. And I mean, I think it's so funny. You bring up like, you know, you have a game plan and you say, I'm not going to do this all week. And then like almost all the time you end up having to do you you pull driver on a hole you say you're never going to pull driver on but like why was that and like just getting the inside look to that stuff would create a better and more engaged and more you know passionate golf fan
1: i think i mean i think it's it's to me it's a no-brainer but as i said there's clearly a, a big issue with uh them catching stuff that it yeah. shouldn't be public consumption, you know? I mean, most stuff that guys talk about is perfectly inane. It's like what the Weekend Warrior does. I mean, they're talking about their girlfriend or their wife or the football, the Cowboys last weekend or whatever it is. I mean, it's all pretty inane. But every now and then they might catch something that's not appropriate. I think the players' kickback against it would be that. Like, they just don't want to get in trouble and they don't want to feel like they have to be a mute because everybody's recording every word they say. But um, yeah. if, if you could pull it off and make it work... It would be it'd be fascinating. I think people would – and I think it would be, on one level, an instructional – it would be instructional for people too because you would just – you would learn so much about how different guys view the game and um, you would learn how Phil – I mean, Phil's conversations with Bones historically are just amazing. I mean, they're brilliant. I mean, you couldn't make them up. The best fiction writer ever couldn't make those conversations up. And like it would be great if people got to hear some of those a little bit more than just when the guy comes over with the furry microphone. Like if you actually heard the whole thing from start to finish, and you and it it would have relativity to what they were talking about on the tee when they were going into the second shot. So it was just really really interesting stuff and how he would go about it versus Tiger and Stevie back in the day, or like Ricky and Joe. It's like everybody's viewing golf a slightly different way, and I think. The way we kind of talk especially under the under pressure and under the real situation you really exposed kind of people's weaknesses and strengths and i think uh it would be just it'd be it'd be a, like a level of access that no one's ever had i think it would be really interesting
0: it would be fascinating i could only imagine some of the conversations and
1: you've been listening to the fried egg podcast we do the digging for you